Hi, this is Grace Cho, CEO of Archpreneur. Today we speak with Jeffrey Brodsky, Vice Chairman of Related Companies. Mr. Brodsky joined Related's Affordable Housing Development Group in 1982, has been an Executive Vice President of Related Affordable for 18 years, and served as President of Related Management from 1997 through 2015. He also leads Related Companies' initiative to increase DEI within the company and the broader real estate industry. Over the years, he's been a member and chairman and leader of many associations and boards within the real estate industry and has earned so many distinctions as an outstanding leader. He has also been the past chairman of Urban Green, the U.S. Green Building Council chapter in New York, and is the current chairman of the New York Energy Efficiency Corporation. In 2009, Mr. Brodsky initiated Related's National Smoke-Free Housing Program across all its asset classes, the first such program in the U.S. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from RPI and Master's degree in Business from NYU. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It is a great privilege. I've been working with you for a great number of months, and uh, it is truly an incredible opportunity for me to have a conversation about you and your background. And as I do with all of my guests, I'd like to start with where did you go to school and what did you study? Actually, nobody's allowed to know this because it's not something that I want people to understand my original college degree was in engineering. Oh, uh, That is something that my father thought would be helpful to my career as a rigorous practice, mm-hmm. and that I didn't necessarily have to become an engineer to apply. And like many things with my dad, he was prescient, and he was exactly correct. It turned out that I actually never worked as uh, an engineer, but everything I've done in real estate, my engineering background has helped me to understand, to appreciate. It's a problem-solving methodology that's helped me. It's a series of structural and mechanical issues that have helped me with climate change and thermodynamics It's helped me. So it's a very strange circumstance that I was smart enough to listen to my father. I've benefited ever since. Your father was a great influence on your career and your life. He certainly was, no question. And got me started in the practice of real estate, actually, soon after I graduated. He had been in the real estate industry since I was a little boy in many different facets, including ultimately becoming one of the first people in New York City to organize an affordable housing renovation program in New York using federal coordination in the 60s. And he was one of the first people to engage the federal department of HUD in affordable housing preservation. And oddly enough, that is my current career focus is affordable housing. So I'm not necessarily the cobbler's son, but he certainly did establish for me the values and the practice and then the introductions and provided me tremendous privilege to um, have been able to make a career out of affordable housing. Wow. I did not know that about your father. And the legacy is continuing with you. So that's an incredible story. Yeah, I miss him, actually. I talk to him all the time. It's a little embarrassing, but uh, he passed Mm -hmm. a couple years ago. But I am still, in part, hearing his voice and in other parts, trying to make him proud. What a touching thing. I, I just adore that story. So when you talk to him after graduation and your thoughts on what he wanted to do, and when you compare that to where you are today, and you look back on your younger self, did you think that you'd be here? Or is it totally different from what you were thinking about? Yeah, you know, it's, it's strange to admit, but uh, I think of myself as very competitive, very goal-oriented, 
but I'm looking at that as a 66-year-old man. In that question, I look back and I say to myself, as I graduated from college, I was oddly unconcerned about my career choice. I was expecting that through hard work, I would have a job and be able to make a way for myself independent of my family. But then to your question, I think a lot of that comes because I grew up from a place of privilege as a white male. I ended up not having any loans from college to pay off. I had a good education. And ultimately, when I found my first career opportunity in the auto industry, I never really felt fear of or a need to have a long-term plan. And then when I ended up in the affordable housing world, it was even more privileged because I went to work with my father who had a business, um, a very small business. It was a one-person business, but the two of us made our way. And then he introduced me ultimately to this guy named Stephen Ross, who I was absolutely blessed to ultimately go to work for. And I've been with related companies now for 40 years. So that's all an awful lot of privilege, right? No loans. And my father who knew a guy who knew a guy named Stephen Ross and ultimately keep my head down, work hard. And I have uh, learned a tremendous amount just by working hard in a, in a focused environment that related provides. And you've been in it for 40 years, which is a long time. What's kept you in this industry? Oh, the reward systems. I mean, it, folks talk about young people today needing to have a sense of purpose in their careers and that that's a priority and having a, a an organizational conscience that they can be proud of. I've always felt that way. And I've always felt that, uh, especially in the affordable housing world, where we're taking care of and providing a service to folks who have very few choices and where systems generally don't support their needs is extremely rewarding. I've been able to be engaged in that practice as well as you know the rest of the asset classes in real estate, but ultimately affordable housing is the one that has the social benefit and the, the reward system that resonates in your heart. And at the same time, obvious to my being here for 40 years, I think it's allowed me to earn a living and put my kids through college. So it's it's got multiple benefits, but that practice in particular has always resonated with me very specifically. Hmm. And so over the course of 40 years, especially in the last decade or so, has it evolved in your opinion? Like how has it changed or stayed the same? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think the, the, the practice when I started was to provide affordable housing. You know, there's an expression in the the frame of reference around affordable housing, housing first. It's almost kind of along the Maslow pyramid. It's very difficult for families to thrive without affordable housing, so it's necessary. At the same time, it's evolved to the point where it is no longer sufficient. And there are expectations that there has to be more than just a shelter. Currently, there are national efforts to establish resident protections. There are services that are social services, mental health services, food insecurity, uh, financial resiliency, all of these issues are coming to the fore as as expectations and frankly are being applied to the affordable housing delivery system first as they uh, are more broadly expected of housers. And we have tremendous reputation risk. Social media has created the expectation that if you don't do a good job, it's going to be obvious to a lot of people really fast. And so very, very different than what it was 40 years ago, as far as the expectations of the owners, the operators, the providers of affordable housing now than what was the case in the 1980s. Hmm. 
And what I know of you, Jeff, your leadership skills are just admirable, both inside and outside of the, the company. And one of the things I recently learned about you is that you're the head of the DEI initiatives for the company. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think after the tragedy of George Floyd's murder three years ago, our CEO was um, passionately anxious for us to not only do better as a company when it came to inclusion and and representative diversity, but also to find a way to lead the industry in innovative ways, not unlike how we do so in other forms of the practice, because the real estate industry is is so lacking in diversity. And so he organized a, a group of our black leaders inside the company to engage and tell us what we should be focusing on. I later learned that that was not a best practice. Um, I was usually ignorant of the expectations of those leaders, but I'm also equally grateful for the six months that they spent, in addition to their day jobs, leading teams of 60 people around the company who assessed where we could do better and where we, we had to do better. They ultimately came back and reported to the CEO. The practice changes were pages long, which was not only extremely helpful, but actually uh, very humbling and um, right on, as it turned out. They gave us 35 measures, the first of which they asked the CEO to identify a chief diversity officer, which Related did not have at the time. And ultimately, we were in a, a period of, of where we were not hiring. And, and Jeff said, you know, can you find a way for me to understand, do I need to hire a person to be the, the chief diversity officer? Because we're kind of not hiring right now. And they said, no, you don't have to hire somebody. You just have to have somebody and they have to report to you and they have to have the gravitas of your support. And so um, Jeff asked them, okay, do you have any recommendations? And they pointed to me and uh, Jeff's initial response was, you want an old white guy to be the chief diversity officer? <laughs> At the same time, the group was very careful to frame why, which was they felt that I had from those decades of experience, I knew the company, I knew our practices, I knew the individuals who were individual leaders all over the country. I had Jeff's confidence, and they felt that that was more important than you know a particular experience in diversity because they knew or hoped that my values were in the right place and the support of the CEO would drive change. And so I was extremely humbled and honored and have worked my butt off to try to get smarter about what has held this industry back and how practices can be best exercised and where we can have an impact. I think that's an incredible development and it's a testament to to you as a leader, being open, uh, being compassionate, being very humble is what people are recognizing. I think you're in the perfect position for that at this moment in time. And the question that I wanted to ask is you're at the center of a lot of different people with different agendas, so to speak, right? both inside and outside of the organization, but you're very effective. Are there specific best practices or lessons learned that you can point to that's made you effective with so many different people pulling at you? There's two points of context. First, I think of myself as very pragmatic. So a lot of folks take on big issues and they get lost in a whole series of different parochial perspectives and everybody's pulling and tugging. I'm a little more specific, and maybe it goes back to my engineering framework or just my natural tendency. I spend most of my time defining the problem you're trying to solve. And you can't solve like generational poverty. 
if you just take that on. That's that's nothing that any organization can can do. But what exactly is our focal concern and getting everybody to agree on defining the problem before you start to move toward assessing resources and technical approaches, right? So it's a it's a strategic effort at getting first people aligned with what we're trying to do. And if we don't do that, then we're definitely not going to solve anything. You get to be distracted and you're all over the place. The second is that you have to be willing to tell the truth to power. I, I can tell you that's even with the privilege I have as a vice chairman, that's a human difficult exercise. There's always going to be bad news and that's not fun to deliver. It's always better to say we close this deal or we achieve this goal. It's never easy to to look hard in the mirror and establish an uncomfortable truth that has to be spoken about. And I have to thank my wife because on a number of occasions over 40 years, I've known that I've had to have a conversation that was going to be difficult. And I would go home to Linda and say, honey, I may not have a job tomorrow, but I just want you to know the second. <laughs> okay. So you have to be willing to do that ultimately to, to really have any impact because uh, the easy stuff gets done on its own. The hard stuff has to be spoken about and has to be described in the scope of what you're going to do. So those two things I think are, if, if anything, I believe are critical to, to making the progress on the hard work that has to get done. That's mm. it's not necessary on the things that are clear and easy. It's the hard work that has to be dealt with differently. It's such a remarkable thing, even at your very senior position in the company or whether it's a starting manager, those tenets of being an effective leader stay true throughout. And I found that personally, as well as, you know, an observation of others. I think you've eloquently described what a, an effective leader is through the, you know, truth to power and the problem solving skills. Is there anything else that defines leadership in your opinion? If you're talking about leading an organization, I had the pleasure of leading a property management team for 25 of the last 40 years. And during that period, it's lots of folks all over the place. And it's very different kind of leadership when it's when it's geographically dispersed and in large numbers, because you can lead more easily with four or five people. But the tenants are the same, which is how, through whatever means, you help your team understand where you want to go, how soon you want to get there, and provide them the context of the organizational values within which they will be working and making their decisions. If you don't give them those points, and obviously then empowering them with the resources they need to be successful, but having them understand very, very clearly and why their job is important, I don't think anyone follows. No one follows. You're not a leader. So there's a lot of leadership skills development programs out there, and, and there are places where you know people raising their voices and setting expectations and all the rest works in the short run. But as somebody who's been here for 40 years, that's kind of a long run. And that I believe that those frameworks, especially letting people understand values, which is hard. It's not like a list on your mission statement of these are our values. That's not, that's not how values are absorbed. And uh, to a certain extent, I just personally, I believe values are absorbed through stories mm. uh, and examples. And you know that's where I think the rubber meets the road at difficult times where you, you tell stories about how your organization re reacts when it's hard to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That really resonates with people. I agree with you 100%. I think the stories are the narrative of the tough situation, how the team responded to it, is always going to be very powerful. 
you know, if you do it truthfully and in a genuine way, I think people react to that very positively. Whether you're in the arts or whether you're in real estate, it doesn't really matter, does it? Is it's because we're all human beings. It's very relevant. I'm going to switch back to the real estate industry in, you know, green living, energy conservation, smoke-free policies. These are things that are very important. And I believe you have a a leadership position in all of this uh, through various activities that you do. In recent years, something that's very close, art and design has become an important factor in the way people want to live and work. Are there other trends that you're seeing in the industry? You know, it's interesting. I think what's always been the case, if we are a provider of homes, right? And then people have to choose us over alternatives. And so any customer-focused experiential advantage is going to be accretive to your organization. I think it's it's interesting because clearly engaging residents the way they want to be engaged, uh, meeting the customer where they are, those are all terminology that applies to so many different consumer goods, including apartment living in the residential space or hotels where we are, or even now the experience of office occupants. We certainly believe very strongly that there's a differentiating opportunity to create an experience for people, even in, even in office environments, especially in a post-COVID world. What's interesting to me is how do we differentiate ourselves as an affordable housing provider when the excess demand for our space exists and we don't have to create it, we still have the need to differentiate it. As a, as a company, it's appropriate and accretive to our brand. It's important to our reputation. It's important to how we are seen. And those differentiating factors include art and design. And we are thrilled and honestly really impressed with the way art has been received as we've rolled it out into our affordable practices as part of our preservation program. And we are grateful to Entrepreneur for your partnership and your insights and the way you're delivering art to our buildings. I think one of the, the harder parts of a polarized world is building a sense of community, especially post-COVID. People are staying more and more inside their own spaces. But I think, uh, honestly, art engages people. And engagement is difficult in this world when we have social polarization. And it's particularly difficult in the affordable housing space when people are personally stressed by their low income in this world. And art is refreshing. Art is uh, rejuvenating. And art allows us to build conversations between people that don't have the same level of conflict that so much political conversation has. Well, thank you so much for those kind comments. It's been truly an honor to provide art. It is my favorite to try to uh, supply art to affordable properties. As with most art, it's a gentle respite, an emotional break from the daily grind. That's why I love art. And everybody can use a little bit of that every day. Agreed. So it's hopefully inspiring those folks to, to take a break and enjoy some color or the narrative of the story of the picture that they're looking at. But thank you. Thank you very much. It really means a lot. The industry itself, what should it be doing more of or less of as you and others build for the future? Are there things that they should be going faster with in terms of how they're going after the different segments, uh, the growing older senior communities, et cetera, that I I can point to that, but love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, this industry is so diverse. You know, it's, it's a huge part of the macroeconomic world that is the United States. It's a, it's a huge part of every GDP of every country around the world. And asset classes are distinct. Geography is distinct. It's an extraordinary business to be in. And we are honored to be a part of that business. But at the same time, 
one of the most frustrating parts of the real estate industry is we have not made any progress in real terms around technology and real estate beyond things like energy efficiency and and some smart homes. Mm-hmm. But for example, the, the framework of building all these, it could be a hotel, it could be an industrial building, it could be an apartment building, it doesn't matter. I think I heard somebody speak to the issue of technology and real estate as the biggest technological innovation in the last hundred years in, in real estate practice is the nail gun. <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. Oh my goodness. And it's been 50 years of discussion around modular homes and modern methods of construction and all kinds of different things, none of which have really been embedded and scaled in the real estate practice. And so we do a lot of things the same way we've done it for 50 years. That's, in my opinion, a liability to the practice. That is part of the reason. No blame. There are a lot of reasons why it has not evolved that are regulatory, that are all kinds of other reasons that are that are barriers to significant change, but there's an affordability crisis that is based on layers and layers of cost structures, but you would think that technology would allow for more cost-effective methods just in the cost of construction. And there have been some, but very few when it comes to the greater scale. And so oddly enough, that is something that the industry needs to figure out how to absorb. There's a lot of prop tech and construction tech startup investing going on now. Uh, We're very engaged in all of that, but it still hasn't taken over the biggest chunk of what needs to be a changed business practice to to truly transform the real estate industry. That has Mm -hmm. just not happened in real estate yet. That's a very insightful comment. I, I hadn't even thought about that. Certainly on the supplier side, there's been a lot of prop tech companies popping up, but when it comes to actual building in the marketplace... I think that's when it gets a little slow. They have robotics and there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that are out there. Right. I'm framing this as uh, it has not been embedded in the practice at scale across asset classes. Certainly as a consumer looking out, I don't see much change. Last question. What advice would you give to a young person who says, hey, I want to be in the real estate business? What would you say to them? I think it's certainly an incredibly diverse business. It's not one thing. It seems very simple to folks. And and depending on your perspective, a lot of people oversimplify and they think, well, it's brokers. They help you sell your house or they find a condo for you or or they rent you an apartment. The industry is is, uh, an extraordinary opportunity uh, placement in part because if you can define what gets you charged up in the morning looking for any job, there is almost I don't care what you're looking to do. There's probably some facet of that in the real estate industry. It could be by asset class. Many of the roles are diverse. So for example, some are very focused on financial success and are highly volatile incomes and bonus-based. Others are roles that are engaging and serving the needs of others on a very human level. Some are essential workers. Others work from home. Some are very competitive. Other roles are highly collaborative. Some are on the leading edge of technology. Others are social service deliverers at a human support level. There is literally space for everyone in the real estate industry if you have enough understanding about how many different roles there are across these asset classes and geographies. And if you can figure out what gets you charged up in the morning, there's a place for you in the real estate industry. I think it kind of goes back to what you said earlier is what's the problem you're trying to solve and define that. And that's what you want to do. There's probably a role for that. I would agree. 
Great, Jeff. Are you working on anything in particular right now that's getting you all excited? Is there something new or exciting that you're working on? There actually is. And uh, sadly, Grace, I'm unable to share with you what that will be. But oh! We'll <laughs> announce it in about, uh, about, about three weeks away. So, oh, yeah, just it's something else that we believe is differentiating and addresses the issues that I raised before about what is it that involves focusing on the needs of the residents, and in this case, in our affordable housing portfolio. Yeah, we're looking forward to announcing that in September. Oh my God, I don't know what that is, but I would love to hear it. I can't wait. <laughs> All right, with that, Jeff, I honestly, it, this has been um, such a privilege and an honor, truly an honor. And I'm grateful to you for not only the podcast, but for all the attention that you serve to the residents, to the art, to everything. So, and, and your compassion comes through. Uh, you're a very rare leader in this industry. And, I, and I'm really, really blessed to have known you and continue to work with you. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Grace. Thanks for the partnership. We appreciate it. Thank you.